You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alex Delamonica lives in Vancouver, British Columbia. She's written for Asimov Science Fiction, Realms of Fantasy, Sci Fiction, and Strange Horizons. Her new novel is Indigo Springs. Thank you for speaking with me, Alex. Oh, thank you for having me, Rick. Alex, this is a, a wonderful novel, and I think at the heart of it are, are the interactions between characters who are present in the novel and some who aren't even present in the novel. And this would be uh, the main characters. Uh, um, Father. So talk about just creating the interpersonal web that kind of through which the magic in this novel bubbles. So you're, you're, you're asking about the, the sort of past between Astrid and her father and, and how, that, how that sort of came to be? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this novel for me because you have a great way of uh, getting at this and to examine the secrets of the past and bring them out in the present. And that, that has a lot of consequences in this book, doesn't it? It does. It does. I can remember being interested in, in that, that process of, of forming a relationship with, with one's parents as we become adults, from, from a fairly early age, I, I left home when I was quite young, as people do. I went to college. I had that sort of period of, of not being very connected to my family of origin. And, and then when I was um, 25, my parents split up, and my, my mother moved to the same city I was living in, and, and it became this, this new phase in our relationship where, you know, we hadn't seen very much of each other for a number of years, and, um, and everything was more or less up for negotiation. And then I was seeing I was seeing a lot of my my peers going through sort of similar things. My generation, Generation X, has had a real stretch in our twenties of examining our parents and how we were raised, and and being very critical in some ways of the baby baby boomer generation. And a lot of us were probably Dr. Spock babies. I know I was. Dr. Spock was this this child raising guru of the sixties who wrote a book about permissive parenting, and mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. it's somehow sometimes held up as this this icon of oh, okay, he told the hippies to just let their kids do whatever they wanted, and then they didn't turn out quite the way their parents thought they would. Uh, um, children never do, I can well, tell you Well, exactly, <laughs> exactly. I, I think, I don't, I don't know about parenting from direct experience. I have no children, but uh, but uh, what what's easy to observe from as an aunt and a, a friend of people who have children is that it's, it's never quite what they expected. There are, there are predictions and expectations, and they're sometimes delightfully confounded and sometimes less pleasantly surprised. With Astrid's dad, I, I sort of wanted, wanted that re-examination to be a, a surprise in a positive direction. I wanted to, to have, have her discover that she had severely underestimated Albert, that he'd always sort of had this, this role as a shambling bum and, and that she'd taken that at face value to basically discover that he had, he had far more intrinsic worth than she'd really given him credit for just because she hadn't looked. And, of course, that's complicated by the fact that she did know at one time and, and because of the magic, had forgotten. But I, I thought it was kind of a, a nice idea, this idea of, of an adult daughter discovering hidden depths in her parents that were, were valuable and worthwhile. One of the things that I really like about this novel is the, the way the magic is created. So could you talk about um, 
describe to us how the magic works in this novel, how your character discovers it in her adult life, okay. and, and also, you know, how you created this system of magic, because it seems uh, very organic and realistic. I, I started actually with the Chantley universe with a couple of short stories. Mm-hmm. I, um, I sold a story called Nevada to Ellen Datlow at SciFiction quite a few years ago, um, and it, it also sort of was a bit of a nostalgia piece. I was writing about my grandparents' home in Nevada and um, some of the childhood toys that, that I had there. And in that story, all, all I really created was a series of, of individual objects that each had a little bit of power attached to them. And one of, one of the first sort of rules that emerged in this, this particular storytelling universe was that magic calls to magic. If you have a little bit, it's easier to find more. Mm-hmm. And so that was, I think, the very first sort of rule that emerged in this universe. And then I, I wrote a couple other pieces. I wrote a story called The River Boy, which was in an anthology of prairie fiction. I, I sort of built on, on that idea of magic calling to magic. And by the time I'd written and published those two stories, it was also sort of laid into the narrative groundwork that if there, if there were these objects and they were powerful enough to, to do the things they could do, um, there would be people who would be after them. Because, mm-hmm. you know, people are naturally drawn to anything that gives them an edge. Like, we like power. So I was working on these stories, and it was going, it was going well, and I was really enjoying them. And at the same time, in a separate set of uh, failed story attempts, I was trying to write about this mystical blue fluid that, that was, um, I had all of these sort of, false starts where magic would start welling up from a crack in the ground and it would have these mutagenic properties and it would essentially be a contaminant and um, it, it was immensely powerful but it didn't really have any kind of focus and, and I, to this day I can't really tell you why I sort of kept returning to that but I was, I was toying with this idea and struggling with it and not, not getting anywhere with it and it, at some point my agent said to me why don't you write something about these chantments um, that's longer you you seem to be onto something here, and and I thought, oh, you know, these go together. I barely brushed past the concept of making enchantments in that first story in Nevada, and and it was like, oh, a raw source of power for the enchantments. This could this could work. So, so the way it works is that there's there's this fluid called Vitagua, which is um, currently sequestered in another realm called the Unreal, and it is slowly working its way back into our realm. And in Indigo Springs, it's, it's a control process whereby there's a well and a, a keeper of that well who takes the fluid and safely sequesters it in objects, which then have, have these various powers. There's a lipstick that makes people really pretty. There's a pencil sharpener that turns um, pencil shavings into gold dust. There's a knife that crumbles things. I oh, think. that's right. There's this beat-up old pocket knife, which is, again, the beat-up old pocket knife that I carried around in my teens until I lost it, mm. that um, anything it nicks essentially crumbles, um, ages and crumbles into, into total decay. So I sort of I devised this, this, this mechanism whereby the, the Vitagua, which in its raw form is extremely dangerous and, and can't really be meddled with directly, uh, could be infused into objects, and then the objects would have a single powerful expression of magic that people could use safely. I, I think it, at one point in the book, I actually refer to the objects as a sort of magical condom. They're a barrier method. Mm-hmm. They allow you to use the ma- magic without being harmed by it. 
One of the things I really like about this novel is this the relationships between the three main characters who come to inhabit the Astrid's father's house, Astrid, her stepbrother Jax, and Sahara. I think that these the the relationship between these characters is one of the main cores of the novel, and the way you explore their kind of shifting sexuality, I think. Uh, is a great way to allude to and a, a great parallel to the unpredictable effects of the magic itself. I, uh, I, I can distantly remember when I was in my 20s being entangled in a, a brief love triangle, and it was an immensely difficult thing. You know, when you're, when you're younger and you have, you have multiple desires going on and, mm-hmm. and you're essentially monogamous as I am, you're, you know, eventually it comes down to a choice. And... Um, Again, that period of your life, you know, you tend to be surrounded by people who are who are in the same sort of state of romantic ferment. So I had a lot of opportunities to observe observe things things going on, great romantic dramas falling apart and coming together mm-hmm. um, all around all around my life. And then as as someone who's queer too, you know, that added another dimension because it wasn't simply oh I like this boy and I like this boy and ooh how do I choose between them? There was also Okay, and if I prefer this woman, you know, what is my life going to be like? In the 80s, it was still a little harder to be queer than it is now. Mm. I think that's one of the things that I think that kind of uh, breaking through the crust, which was happening at that time, mm-hmm. I think is is reflected in the way um, that gives that the approach to magic a same kind of uh, emotional heft because the magic is somewhat new to these characters <clears throat> and they're discovering it but it's also interestingly enough something that Astrid has known long 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 so talk about this idea of secrets burbling up just like the magic burbles up and the effects both good and bad that can happen when you all of a sudden remember something or discover something that has long been held from you, or or maybe you did know it. Well, I definitely I wanted to draw a bit of a parallel between the the idea of of being a lesbian and being invisible, which was again a very sort of prominent idea in the eighties that that you would never know if you looked at a woman if she was invisible or not, and that this had advantages and disadvantages. With the idea that that Astrid had more or less been raised since since early childhood to to cultivate this idea of invisibility to not be overly noticed to not to not draw attention to herself because her father had had this this idea that she would take over for him and he'd gotten by all those years by um by simply being inconspicuous and this mm-hmm. is of course why she underestimated him so badly in in life right is he'd managed to sort of create this seamless impression of himself as someone not to be taken seriously. And like, like a lot of things that as time goes on and, and generations sort of pass through, um, what works for one generation doesn't necessarily work for another. Now that's a really interesting uh, observation because we kind of always think that the, the answers are always going to be the same. And that's one of the great you know, joys of this novel is that what everybody expects will, you know, what worked before, everybody expects it's going to work again, but it doesn't. They they're 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 all relatively practical people. Mm-hmm. Sahara less so, but but uh, they they just don't have a good grip on how how immense the problem they're dealing with is. Mm-hmm. Um, they're they're sitting on this enormous amount of of this magical fluid, and and it's coming up drop by drop. So at first they don't realize that you know they're they're on a powder keg, and 
you know, these little logical, well, we'll just keep it in the mayonnaise store and we'll use it up fast and it'll be okay, um, that, that the scope of the problem is kind of beyond them uh, in that way. I, and, and I think, too, that uh, one, the other scope of the problem that's beyond them is uh, Sahara's uh, character, her personality. I mean, we all know people like this, people who are very charming, they're easy, they're fun to be with. You think, boy, this is the person I want to spend a lot of time with. But then when you start spending a lot of time with them, you realize that they are spending a lot, of, even though they might be in the same room with you, they're still spending time with themselves. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And she's in that way, she's certainly a foil to Astrid's father, where mm-hmm. he can tr- created a surface, surface impression of shallowness and had depth. Sahara really only has that surface impression. Um, and she's, she's drawn to the power, and she, she just can't, she can't look away. It just offers her so much that she wants, because there's so much she doesn't have, you know, spiritually, emotionally. She's, she's kind of sadly empty, Sahara is, in a lot of ways. That's an interesting observation, and I never thought about it that way. That because that those who are empty are drawn, try to fill themselves with power, and it never works out particularly well for either those people or the people in their general vicinity. Yeah, yeah, it's it's easy to be selfish, and we all do it at at various times. But you know, it almost always costs us and you know whoever has paid the price of our initial. Our initial bad choice. One thing that, that I think is really interesting in this book is the way you plotted it, the way you revealed the story. I love the character of Will, <clears throat> and, and I love this beginning. I mean, there aren't many books that begin with the uh, apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was heavily influenced by uh, Catherine Dunn's Geek Love. Mm. Um, Catherine taught at my Clarion. I went to Clarion West in 1995, mm-hmm. and she is... Um, She's an amazing writer, and she's um, she has such an interesting lyrical gift. And, and Geek Club is is very much structured in that I'm telling you from the point of view of now how everything went wrong for me in the past. And it's not the only novel that sort of has that structure, obviously. But I was I was intrigued by it. I was really captivated by it when I read Geek Club, and I, I found that I find stories that have that that illusion of okay. You already know everything that's happened, but you don't know how. Mm-hmm. Um, they really draw me in, and then the the moment there's almost always a moment in those books where they say, in one way or another, and then this is how it all went wrong. You mm-hmm. get about two thirds of the way of the book through the book, and and it's trucking along, and you've sort of had a chance to forget that something terrible is coming, um, and it's starting to look like it'll be okay, and then there's this chapter break or this scene break, and and the next phrase will be okay, and then it all fell apart. And I just, I find those story moments so powerful. So I wanted to learn how to write one. I wanted to learn how to seem to put all my cards on the table, literally in this book, um, from the very beginning. And then, uh, and then go, oh, except I did kind of hide this. And, oh, I didn't really mention that. And, oh, I bet you didn't know this. And it was fun. It was enormous fun. One of the things you say in this book, and I love this 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 uh, vision, is uh, magic is even more undemocratic than technology. I, I love that notion. Well, we we um, we forget here where almost everyone can afford a TV and uh, maybe not an iPhone, but you know a cell phone. That that in in fact these are incredible riches, and they're amazingly powerful. I'm I'm a longtime gamer, and the gaming system I always really liked was the Hero system. And it, it lets you create almost any, any genre of story. And um, I, I played a lot of superhero games because 
again, child of the 80s, a lot of comic books, uh, reading the X-Men right through the sort of golden age of the mutant storylines. And um, you can draw, in the champion system, you can draw up superpowers with incredible precision. You can sort of create a mathematical simulation for any kind of power. But, but this warps your mind eventually to the point where you, you look at your TV remote control and you go, this is telekinesis with only one effect. This is like a one-point superpower because I could turn the TV on from across the room. And the line blurs. <laughs> um, I never thought about it that way. Especially but yeah. if you're not an engineer, and really it might as well be magic because you don't honestly know how it works. In Indigo Springs, are, are, they're not really technology because they can do things that we can't build. Um, but we use them. The characters use them like technology. Um, and that happens even more in the, in the second book. When, when Astrid's actually trying to grapple with the, the scale of the problem and she now understands that it's huge, you know, she starts needing a certain amount of infrastructure to cope with the scale of the disaster. So she's basically building things and digging holes and erecting structures that will actually let her, let her safely release the magic. One thing I think that's interesting about this story, remind me a bit of uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, in that, that she's somewhat unstuck in time because she's, as she's coming to grips with her memories, she, she really flits back bef- between the past and present in different points of her life, and, and Will also has those kind of experiences with her, trying to figure out where she is at any one moment in the, in the process of her life. Yeah, I, I, needed, um, I needed some reason for her not to be a straightforward witness. Mm-hmm. And I didn't merely want it to be an issue of not being cooperative. And again, this idea that you know, when you're when you're overwhelmed by a problem, you don't you don't have total control over it. The direct context that Astrid has with magic allows her to see glimpses of the future. But yeah, the cost is that it it makes her shakier on on um, chronology. So she has a great sense of everything that's happened, but she can't remember where or why, when or why. Now, you referred to the second book in the series. It's called Blue Magic. When is it coming out? And give us a little idea, because one of the things I liked about this book is that, well, when I finished, I thought, well, gosh, there's going to be more. I thought it was a satisfying novel in and of itself, you know, this kind of vision of the apocalypse Mm -hmm. and very chaotic and the way you would expect the apocalypse to be, not just a nice, neat press the button, the end of the world, and a few people go down into the fallout shelters. So yeah. tell us about uh, Blue Magic. Where uh, Give us an idea, A, when it's going to come out, and B, wh- where it's going to go. Uh, it's scheduled for the spring of 2011. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 14, 16 months from now, mm. I guess. Um, it's, it's written. It's, it's sitting in New York um, waiting for a little editorial attention. It uh, takes place about six months after the end of Indigo Spring. Colonel Roche, who uh, is Astrid's jailer, essentially, in Indigo Springs, has um, got himself a promotion and moved to the Wendover Air Force Base in Nevada and Utah. It's sort of on the border in the Bonneville Salt Flats. And from there, he he and the Air Force are hosting a federal government trial of Sahara for treason. And the U.S. government's hope is that if they can discredit Sahara and show that the justice system is still able to to deal with mystics and the mystical outbreak and the eco-terrorism that Sahara has been been committing, that that this will be the beginning of the solution to to their problems. And Will has been been part of this effort because he's still looking for his wife, who who has become one of Sahara's followers, and his children. But as as the book opens, the big show trial is ready to begin. 
Um, they've arrested Will's wife, and they still don't have the kids. So he's he's in kind of a bad place mm. emotionally. Astrid is back in Indigo Springs in the heart of the contaminated forest, um, attempting to, to find a way to safely release the magic, which she's promised, as you probably remember. Mm-hmm. She has promised the people of the Unreal that she will she will do this if they will save someone who's close to her. And um, there are actually two other point-of-view storylines, point-of-view mm-hmm. characters and storylines in it. And one is um, Astrid's mother, Ev, mm-hmm. who's just gone through gender transition. Mm-hmm. And he and Patience are in the Unreal, sort of acting as ambassadors to the people there who are, who are slowly becoming freed and more numerous and would like the process to happen as speedily as possible. It also tells the story of uh, the federal marshal, who is essentially Sahara's bodyguard slash main jailer mm. at the trial. Um, so it, it follows the four of them through the next stage of the mystical apocalypse, essentially. <laughs> well, I, I, we'll be looking forward to this mystical apocalypse. I've been speaking with Alex Delamonica. Her new novel is Indigo Springs. Thank you for speaking with me, Alex. Well, I've really enjoyed it, Rick. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.